Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Well, hello everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of GodPod. And it's uh, always good to be here with uh, Mike and Jane, as many times before. Hello, Michael. I imagine it must be Graham. Uh, yeah, it's very pleasant for me too. Nice very to see you. Which uh, we can, even though that listeners can't. Yeah, we're on Zoom, as you may have gathered by now. Which we've kind of kind of migrated onto Zoom, sort of more generally, haven't we? We don't, we don't actually we don't actually see each other anymore. No, which means, means we have to buy our own biscuits, which is a bit of yeah, a bit that's... dig. Yeah, it is. We don't get to share something like that, do we? Anyway, no. Jane, Jane, you're here as well, which is very good. But also not here, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yes. here, here, but not here. <laughs> yeah, well, no. we get used to that, Jane. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. Yeah. State of life nowadays, yeah. I mean, now, but not yet. And uh, we also have a guest today who is um, someone who's been on GodPod before, and uh, we are delighted to have... Um, the Reverend Dr. Mark Scarlatta with us. Mark, it's great to have you with us. Yeah, lovely to be with you all. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me again. So uh, Mark is uh, a lecturer in Old Testament at St. Melitus College. And uh, as you can tell from Mark's voice, you're not from around these parts of the world, are you? No, no. <laughs> but been around these parts for about, oh goodness, almost the last 15 years now, which is, which is quite striking, actually. Yeah, yeah. And where do you, where do you come from? What's, where's your kind of home? So originally grew up in Connecticut, um, very close to New York City, and then did some um, lived in Boston for a little bit, and then came back to Connecticut, where I worked at a church for about seven years. Uh, and then we came to Cambridge in 2007. And so have been, yeah, been in England and the UK ever since. Very good. And, and, I, and today we are um, going to talk about Mark's uh, latest book, which we'll do in a moment. But um, Mark, just a quick question before we, we, we get into that one. Um, how, how come you ended up being an Old Testament lecturer? What, what, what drew you to the Old Testament as opposed to any other branch of theology? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think what it was was when I, after finishing theological college, um, I trained at a place called Gordon Conwell up in uh, the North Shore of Boston. And then as I got into my church ministry, I think I remember it was a it was a sermon series we did on the book of Daniel. And I was brushing up on my Hebrew and trying to get back into it from all the things that I'd learned at theological college. And I just realized at that point how just absolutely deficient I was in my knowledge of the Old Testament and was so fascinated at all the connections, obviously, with the New Testament and Revelation and Daniel. And so decided after about five years of full-time ministry, um, the congregation uh, church called Stanwich Church in Connecticut, and um, and they were so gracious and let me go back up to Yale to do um, a master's in Old Testament. And so I plunged back into it and then really thought, oh, this is, you know, this is amazing. I mean, there's just so much to learn. And so I thought that I would pursue a PhD in that also. Very good. Yeah, I remember visiting Stanwich Church in Connecticut. Very nice church it is. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Very welcoming. Great. Well, um, Mark, the, the book you just uh, brought out a little while ago is um, it's called A Journey Through the World of Leviticus. 
Holiness, Sacrifice and the Rock Badger. So, um, uh, Marcus, again, tell us why you started writing a book about Leviticus, because it's probably, I guess if you ask most people what's their favourite book of the Bible, I doubt whether many people would stick Leviticus top of the pile, would they? <laughs> and, and when you have it read as the Old Testament lesson or something, you can see people glazing over, can't you, thinking, what? <laughs> yes, so yes. And for, the, for those in more liturgical traditions who follow a daily office, um, you'll realise very quickly that Leviticus is very sparse of ever even coming up in the lectionary. So there's mm. not many opportunities, actually, if you're in a uh, kind of a lectionary-based church to even preach on it. Um so what was, so I, I, you know, in all honesty, I'm not sure what, uh, what drew me to it. Um, but I think I was fascinated by Leviticus as such a foreign book to so many and, and why it um, and, and how it could potentially speak to us. And I think what ended up happening, I mean, the, the, the whole thing really started and um, you know, this is kind of, goes back to kind of the very foundations of the college. And, and I remember in, in 2010, when I first came and started teaching a little bit at St. Melitus and got to know Graham, um, one of the things he kept drilling into our minds was that St. Melitus was a place where, um, where, there, where theology is at the heart of the church. And it was something that really resonated with me. And so interestingly enough, the kind of impetus for this book came out of uh, something that was critical and is still critical to part of the original vision that Graham, you had, and Jane and Mike, um, about bringing theology into the church. And so in the School of Theology, I was asked to uh, do a four-part series at the very beginning of lockdown. And um, it was really out of that. And it was a Zoom series. We were all kind of locked in our rooms. And at that point, Zoom was not so um, so absolutely tiresome and terrible. Um, and it was new for everyone. And so we had a four-part series on Leviticus. And I think just the feedback that I got from it and all the questions really were kind of the impetus of, of writing something on Leviticus for the church. And I, I love those three words in the title. And obviously we, I, I, we want to know about all of them, the journey and the holiness and the rock badger. Um, start with the journey. How is it, is, is there a sort of real impetus through Leviticus? Is there a, a sort of narrative thread that will help us get our heads through? The journey through numbers, that's a very <laughs> obvious geographical one, but you must mean something different through Leviticus. Yes, yes. So, so Leviticus does kind of stay put in the sense of you're not really going anywhere because it's at Mount Sinai and it's just the laws of sacrifice revealed. I think the journey aspect was, um, I was trying to think of a word and sadly I couldn't think of a better word than journey because that is a, a fairly overused word in our, in our world today. But I was trying to think of traveling to a foreign culture um, because I think the book of Leviticus is, you know, as, as much as you can get into a foreignness uh, for a Westerner, you know, a contemporary mm -hmm. Western Christian, uh, Leviticus is about as foreign as you can get in the scriptures, I think. And so that was part of the journey. The journey was to, to make it a bit of a, let's go on let's go on a ride through this countryside and let's kind of pause every once in a while and look at some, you know, some of the sites and some of the scenes, let's get a taste of the culture. Let's try to think in as much as we can kind of put ourselves in the shoes of these people um, and these ancient people, because it is again, just so vastly different than anything we know. 
And so, and so obviously, I mean, if you know kind of anything about Leviticus, you know, it's about holiness. So we want to be, you know, God calls us to be holy as he is holy. So that, that's kind of um, self-explanatory and then sacrifice another one, which is what usually turns most people off to the book of Leviticus. They don't like all the blood, but we can talk about why, or why that's an important thing. And then the rock badger. Well, I just, I love that you're not supposed to eat rock badgers. I mean, there's a commandment in Leviticus 11 and, um, you know, this little animal called the hyrax uh, that dwells and uh, on the cover of the book, actually, and I didn't even plan this, the, the person who chose the cover, there's mama and papa, uh, um, a hyrax or rock badger and the three babies. And we just happened to have three children. So it, it worked, it worked very well. My children all right. noticed that. And they said, this is the best Old Testament cover I've ever seen. <laughs> They are, they are very cute, so you wouldn't want to eat them. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I know it's nice to think there's one thing that we're faithful about. I have never eaten a rock badger. So, and I'm sure that um, I'm sure that Leviticus is probably the rock badger's favourite book of the Bible. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but it just—I think the reason that I pulled that one out was just because it was one of these you know, quirky things, you know, if you go and visit a foreign culture, there are some just strange things that you almost can never explain. And the dietary laws are one of those things that just trip so many people up because they think, well, how can, you know, God's command to not eat a rock badger or, you know, or other different types of, you know, other animals and things like that. How can that possibly have anything to do with our kind of call to holiness? And, and I think that was, those were the types of things that kept me going back to Leviticus to say, you know, if, if this whole book is about the pursuit of holiness, about drawing near to God, um, then how can all of these just completely foreign, strange concepts have anything to do with it? And I thought the rock badger was a good example of one. <laughs> mm. but, but to pick up your own question, Mark, what have all those strange dietary laws have to do with the Christian life today? Yeah, so, well, first, I think in Leviticus, um, they establish rituals for the people. Um, and remember, we're talking in the ancient world, um, a, a highly illiterate society, uh, primarily illiterate, mostly a, an agrarian, self-sustaining farming society. And so the way that you teach people, um, if you don't go to school and you don't have books and exams and things like that, um, the way that you teach people and the way that God teaches his people um, <clears throat> is through ritual. And what better way to teach someone about, about God's holiness and, and who we are as a people set apart in this particular way um, than to have that be connected to our food? So, Every single moment, every time we sit down at the table and we break bread and we share together, we are reminded of, um, of who we are as God's chosen people. And I think that's one of the reasons why I think um, it's, it's called kashrut in the Hebrew or kosher laws are still so significant in the life of Jews today and many Jews today, because there is something so powerful about the ritual and how the ritual of the physicality of the ritual identifies our life with, <clears throat> with God and, and, and this call to holiness. Now, in terms of Christians, I mean, I think we have rituals in the Christian church that are intended to do similar things, whether it's the, uh, the Eucharist uh, as we celebrate together as a church, 
or um, whether it is gathering together in prayer, uh, these certain rituals that we have as Christians. Now, we don't have prescriptions like the food laws, obviously. The food laws kind of uh, are, are fulfilled or filled out in the New Testament, and Christ uh, clearly kind of supersedes those as, as a sign of the covenant community. But we have other signs today, um, and I think that was another side of the book that um, that really I found so intriguing was how we learn by ritual and how we gain knowledge by ritual. I think that's something we've we've lost uh, in. It's maybe coming back a little bit more now, but it, I think it's something we've lost in contemporary society. And do you think that's partly to do with the fact that the Western Church, since the gospel went to Greece, has kind of neglected the body generally and therefore what you eat doesn't matter and how you you choreography doesn't matter uh, ritual doesn't matter we've lost that whole way of learning growing and celebrating and uniting with one another and with god yes i I definitely think it's it stems from kind of ancient philosophies um and uh, but i do think it's I do think, and I talk a little bit about this in the book, um, I do think a lot of it comes um, from kind of post-enlightenment philosophy and, and, and especially kind of modern secularism. And kind of since the enlightenment, there's certainly been a kind of cultural and secular understanding that uh, that has created um, often this kind of false dichotomy between science and religion, you know, as if these two things are on completely different platforms. So, so in our culture, oftentimes people think that if science can explain something, then that's the end of the discussion. You know, if, if I can prove something scientifically, then there's no need to talk about God, which, which is kind of nonsensical in, in many ways, because, you know, just by, demonstrating something in the physical world doesn't necessarily uh, you know relate to who god is and 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 god's participation in the world um and so so i think mike i think a lot of it is just our is our culture today and our culture that tends to believe that kind of the only kind of truth is empirical and propositional truth and that the whole idea of knowledge by experience is something that has been largely shelved. Um, but I do think it's, it's I, you know, I was just listening to a, um, a lecturer who was lecturing here in Cambridge. It was a seminar on kind of cognitive and neurological, um, the neurological studies and sciences. And, um, and, they, and he was making a strong case that, that actually without our bodies, and without the physical engagement we have in this world through our senses, through our muscles, through our stomachs, through our, through our gut microbiome, through our neuro, neurosynapses, without this, we can't come to knowledge. Um, I, no, and, uh, sorry. No, 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 go ahead. I, I'm, I wonder whether actually uh, lockdown has changed people's attitudes a little bit here, or is beginning to, because we realized, as you were saying earlier about Zoom, um, it, it doesn't meet your every need. Uh, mm. And actually people after a, a few months of just engaging remotely, feel completely dissatisfied. I bumped into John Lennox the other day, I said, how are you? And he said, oh, I'm a complete zombie. <laughs> uh, I haven't heard that one yet. <laughs> and actually, you know, we all, we all have rituals. Even mm. the secular world has rituals. We shake hands when we meet. And if we don't, if we can't, 
we touch elbows, but the, you find another way of doing ritual. So yeah. actually, you're still ritual beings. Mm. So that, um, I mean, going back to that that aspect of ritual, I mean, part of what a ritual does, it, it sets you apart from people who don't share that ritual. Um, so does that, uh, do the rituals around food and so on tie in with an idea of holiness that is about being set apart, coming mm. on to that, another one of your words in your talk? Yes, yes. And and so that, I mean, and, and that is kind of one of the primary um, kind of definitions of holiness in, in Hebrew is to really to set something. It's usually to wash something and set it apart towards mm. God. And so, <clears throat> and so, yes. So, so the call to be holy as God is holy um, includes this um, includes this, this idea that you're not to be, and this is kind of re- repeated throughout the um, throughout the Pentateuch and throughout these first five books of the Bible, this idea that you're not to be like the other nations. Mm-hmm. So God has called Israel to be distinct. Now, the problem comes when that distinctiveness kind of turns against the outsider. Um, but that is never the way that Moses or God, I think, envisaged what Israel's distinctiveness was to be, because the idea at least as far as I've read and and what I understand of Leviticus and holiness is that the movement towards holiness, you know, this radical call of every person, you know, whether priest, whether the great high priest or to the lowest farmer to be holy as God is holy is the idea that the entire nation is somehow separated and moving towards the heart of the father. Um, and this is so beautifully illustrated. I've been reading in um, in David Ford's recent commentary on the Gospel of John, um, this movement in John of Jesus being uh, at the bosom of the Father and then drawing the believer into that. And I think that is kind of the you know, the foreshadowing of that is in Leviticus. It's this idea that there are outward signs, there are rituals and symbols that are to continually remind, uh, you know, a very uneducated people that, that they are to be moving towards this holy God in whether they eat or whether they sacrifice or how they treat their neighbor, how they participate in the economy, how they, you know, use their money, their resources, everything about it. It's a full kind of a full life discipleship as it were. And I think, I think it's just amazing. And I think it ties so much into kind of, you know, into the Christian call for holiness as well. Yeah. Th- thanks, Mark. And uh, I mean, one, one aspect, I guess, of the book of Leviticus is this sort of strange preoccupation with disease and, and uncleanness and so on. You know, there's always bits about bodily discharges and the purification of, of, of women and, you know varieties of leprosy and all that kind of thing so is that all connected to holiness why that sort of preoccupation with disease and cleanliness and and all of that yeah i mean i think some of that is is just cultural anthropology i mean we're, we're talking about a, a society three thousand you know some odd years ago and so some of it is just what are the <clears throat> what is the worldview and the framework around holiness? And for Leviticus and for you know many cultures at that time, things like bodily diseases, um, uh, things that are associated with blood spilling from the body, all have these kind of um, taboos around them to a certain extent. And um, <clears throat> you know it was interesting because this this book was written mainly during the lockdown. This kind of goes back to Mike's point is that. I was just constantly reminded of the necessity of 
of being physically engaged with things, with other people, with life, you know, with the material world. Um, and so, but so in Leviticus, there is, um, you know, some people call it an obsession, but it, but there is this idea that purity is, um, you know, is very much attached to our physical being. So, you know, if, uh, if a woman is in her menstrual cycle, then she's impure for a certain amount of time. Now, what I try to explain, and, and this is the hard part, is that most of the time in Leviticus, impurity is simply a, um, is a physical state that is in relation to the tabernacle. And so the reason, so the, the only thing, I mean, leprosy or what they, it's a skin disease. It's not really what we call Hansen's disease, but leprosy is one thing that is a contagious disease. So the person has to go outside the camp or outside the fellowship, but most other impurities, you know, whether there's mold on your walls or you, you know, or you you have bleeding or something happens, you know, something happens. Um, it's in relation to coming into the presence of God in the tabernacle when you can, you know, after a woman gives childbirth, this kind of thing. And so it's not meant, it's not a moral judgment against the person. So, so for a woman who has to stay uh, away from the tabernacle for, um, oh, I forget how many days, it's like 30 days for a boy and 60 days for a girl. And, you know, a lot of people look at that and say, well, you know, why is the girl, you know, what's, why is a girl more impure or something? And, and in fact, actually, I think there's a valid argument to say that, that um, there was a higher mortality rate with, uh, with female, with um, girls who were born in the ancient world. Part of it is because um, of a biological um, uh, aspect of, of women that they bleed more uh, after the birth of a girl than they do a boy. I think that's what I remember reading. I'll have to go back and look at my book. <laughs> there are stages of stages of blood flowing after um, after the pregnancy. Anyway, um, so it was very possible that something like that was just to protect the woman, uh, to keep her from um, to keep her from disease, to keep her from injury, to keep them from harm. But again, it's so many, so many, so oftentimes it, Leviticus separates that purity specifically in relation to the tabernacle. And so that's why when we get to the Christian faith, um, you know, we don't practice those things anymore because we don't have that concept of a singular geographical place where God's glory dwells, meaning the tabernacle or later in Jerusalem. Um, although to be to be fair, though, which is very fascinating, if any of you are, are Book of Common Prayer enthusiasts, <clears throat> you will know that that the Catholic Church for centuries uh, maintained something called the the, uh, the churching of women after childbirth, and so there is actually a little liturgy in the um, in the Book of Common Prayer about the churching of women, and and so they are supposed to come to the door of the church and uh, read a psalm, and then um, in the Catholic writer in the early church there was a, a purification right um and part of that was but i think part of that was attributed to to augustine and his idea of sex and birth and sin and all that kind of <laughs> kind of and he I kind of lumped those all together i suppose another thing i mean obviously during lockdown we did really miss um touching each other hugging each other and so on but we also had to become incredibly conscious about cleanliness didn't we mm. um uh, and uh, it, it is quite interesting that some of these uh, strange uh, suggestions in, Le in Leviticus are actually quite sensible in a, a society where you don't have antibiotics, where you don't have running water, you, um, that actually um, we've, we are having to rediscover the importance of, 
yeah. um, those kind of rituals in some ways to keep you to keep each other healthy. Yeah. And, and isn't it fascinating that when we were in the lockdown that, uh, you know, and when you saw the government officials and the scientists come on, you know, BBC and on the screen, wasn't it fascinating that they always repeated the, the same phrase, we go by the science, we go by the science. And it was almost as if, you know, science was, you know, I mean, you, you know, you could criticize Leviticus as being, oh, these, you know, kind of uh, taboo, you know, taboo beliefs. But, but I think equally the Levitical authors would have looked at us and said, well, what is science? Is that your God? You know, <laughs> is that your, you know, and, and now post pandemic, there have been so many, you know, so many articles on how the science actually really wasn't ever quite there, that there were different models for, uh, you know, for all sorts of things, but, um, but that in fact, you know, the science, the science wasn't really, really, uh, you know, kind of a hundred percent as the government officials wanted to make us believe it was. Wearing my problem of evil hat. Oh, there we go. I mean, I, and I know this doesn't work completely, but I, I wonder whether the uncleanness kind of factor in this is flagging up that disease and death are not part of God's good purposes. Yeah. Um, too often, people who write on the problem of evil, um, like I do, uh, kind of suggest that in some way it's part of God's will. It might be his punitive will, or it might be he's doing it so that you can grow through it and develop through it. But actually, I think Leviticus, Leviticus is saying, no, these things are not, mm. not right. They're not as they should be in some way. Yeah. Um, I just done work going through the Gospels, and you know, whenever you see Jesus in the presence of suffering, you see him undoing it. Um, yeah, you never see him saying, "Oh well, you know, I'm sure it'll do you good." Yeah, there's there's a fascinating book. You really like this one, Mike. Um, it was called um, it's called Jesus and the Forces of Death by Matthew Teeson. I think I bring it up in this book and in another book on Leviticus, and um, and he highlights this um, not so much in, in in the question of the problem of evil, but certainly the symbols of blood and death, those things which are unclean. Um, again, so this is why, um, you know, for something like menstruation is it, it is that it's symbolic in our bodies of, of death. It is, you know, kind of blood being released. Um, and then you, you know, you shouldn't touch unclean things, whether it's a dead animal or a dead body, or you become unclean for a certain period of time. But um, Thiessen's uh, kind of thesis in his book is that, is that, and I think he's right in this, is that because Jesus is the embodiment of God's glory, that this kind of tabernacling of God's glory, uh, kind of taking on this Old Testament image of temple and tabernacle, um, he, he destroys the forces of death. So, so those things like leprosy, like the woman who has been bleeding for, you know, for 30 years, um, <clears throat> like, uh, pe you know, illness, people uh, crippled or lame who wouldn't have been able to come into the temple because of their uncleanness. Um, those types of things, you know, Jesus as the, as the divine full glory, the fullness of God's glory in the flesh kind of destroys those forces of death and brings life. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating, I mean, I went back and read kind of through the gospel of Mark in particular. And when you read it, kind of what Jesus is doing through that lens and through the lens of Leviticus, it, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. I suppose one of the other themes of Leviticus, which may relate to that, I guess, is the, uh, I guess the theme of atonement and the idea that the day of atonement 
And, I, and I'm wondering um, both how that fits into the broader themes of Leviticus for you, but also in what ways, obviously, you know, we read that looking backwards in the light of, of New Testament understandings of atonement through Christ and, and his sacrifice on the cross. And, you know, we, we read these, these stories of, you know, bulls and goats being sacrificed and so on, which is rather sort of odd and strange for us. But where does, where does atonement fit into that broader structure? What, what, how significant is it there? And, and in what ways does it point forward to, to Christ? Yeah, that is, that's the million dollar question <laughs> right there. Um, I do have a chapter on, on, on blood and atonement. And, and so people can read a little bit deeper there. Um, but I think uh, atonement is you know, apart from holiness, atonement is the fundamental, uh, one of the most, the singular, most fundamental things in Leviticus, um, because atonement allows us to, to be brought back into the presence of God. And so this is the thing that, that judgment in Leviticus, and I think judgment in the Old Testament, is a restorative judgment. So God does not tell people, you know, you're unclean, uh, you've sinned, you're dirty, now stay away from my presence. But he institutes an entire system, a sacrificial system, that allows for reconciliation, and that allows people to come back into his presence. So the idea is really summed up in, in Leviticus chapter 17, and there's a verse 1711 that says, uh, the life of the blood is, uh, the life is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for your sins. And so the two critical ideas there is that one, blood is given by God. So in many other ancient Near Eastern cultures, blood was used as manipulation because it basically throughout the ancient Near East, blood was the most uh, powerful substance uh, symbolically of life. And so it was offered as a sacrifice to the gods. And <clears throat> so the one idea is that God gives it to us. So it's nothing that we can do on our own. It's nothing that we can manipulate or do any, you know, it's, it's a simply a gift of mercy from God. But then he says the life is in the blood. And this is where um, I think we get into the symbolism of cleansing and this idea that um, in Leviticus that sin, so when we sin, whether advertently or inadvertently, we incur a type of stain on ourselves, but not only on ourselves. Now that kind of kind of might resonate with Christian thinking and with, with Aquinas and others. Um, but it's not only on ourselves. In Leviticus, it's actually the stain of sin is then somehow metaphorically transferred to God's home, to his tent, to the tabernacle, or to the uh, or to his, you know, to where he dwells. And so you see that there's a double need involved in sacrifice. So the transfer of blood. So if you bring an animal to sacrifice, you're essentially saying, may the, the death of my sin, may it be a kind of washed away, may it be cleansed and purged through the life that I offer on God's altar, through the lifeblood of this lamb, let's say. And when that lamb's blood is poured out at the altar, so it was not, it was never meant to be any kind of punishment upon the lamb or to, to violently hurt the lamb or anything like that. It was meant to be done in the most humane way. But when that blood was spilled and came in contact with God's holy altar, something happened where 
the sinner was purged of their sin, but also the tabernacle and the sanctuary was purged. And so this is why you get the need for the day of atonement, which is the one day where the high priest would go into the very holy of holies, the, the kind of on top, there was a what's called the mercy seat uh, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and he would make sacrifices there for the to cover the entire year's worth of kind of sins that had built up to cleanse the sanctuary. So ultimately, so that God wouldn't leave. And so when we think about Christ, um, you know, the, there are different ways of thinking of atonement, obviously, in the New Testament. But when we think about Christ as you know, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have both the imagery of the Passover Lamb, which is God's, you know, symbolizes God's defeat of the Egyptians, his sovereignty, his power. But then we have the atoning Lamb of sacrifice, and we have that blood of, <clears throat> that blood of cleansing, that blood of purity. Um, but Paul in, um, in uh, is it in Philippians chapter two, or is it Philippians, or is it Colossians? Colossians, um, when he talks about the blood of Christ um, making atonement and reconciling all things, whether in heaven or whether on earth. And so there is this kind of, and you get this in the book of Hebrews, this idea that in Christ, it is not just limited to, yes, Jesus forgives my sins, but there is in fact kind of and a cosmic cleansing uh, uh, that has occurred through the blood of Christ. So it's, it's, it's a lot deeper than that, but there, <laughs> there's some, there's some, some little, little bits on, on how it connects. Oh, fascinating. And um, you've given us a little bit of a, a taste of um, what you've been uh, spending a lot of time thinking about and writing about in this, this book. Uh, we, we reached the end of our time on the, this God pod. And so Mark, thank you so much for um, joining us today. A fascinating little discussion around, Leviticus. The book is called uh, A Journey Through the World of Leviticus, Holiness, Sacrifice and the Rock Badger, published by uh, Cascade Books. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. I take it you can't tell us what rock badger tastes like. <laughs> I've kept myself pure from rock oh, well badger. Done. Well done. <laughs> uh, haven't we all? Anyway, very good. So Mark, thank you so much. Um, very good to see you again, Mike and Jane. Lovely to see you too. Uh, thank you for having me. And uh, for all you GodPod listeners out there, we'll be back again with another episode before too long. Okay, goodbye. That was GodPod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.